This is Ken Erickson, and our podcast is Serving and Uniting America. And today, I'd like to talk about President Reagan's salute to Stalingrad and our timeless imperative to serve and unite our country. Thank you for your attention. Today, we are a divided nation, and everywhere we turn, we see evidence of this. I wanted to just share some information from the past that really is relevant not only today and our government, our administration uh, today, but really would be relevant to 20 years from now, 40 years from now. Basically, for over 30 years, I have known that President Reagan and his pragmatic uh, security and diplomatic staffs learned and achieved a great deal, very solid results, while working with the Russians. And much of this is worth sharing with later American governments, including our own, because every government at some point faces some of the most critical issues involving our populace. What are some of the other things that we're wrestling with before we we get into the nitty-gritty on uh, President Reagan's administration, specifically for security and his diplomatic corps? Can we somehow overcome our divide that keeps us from uniting against a lot of different challenges? Can we come to grips, for instance, with gun violence that even now turns certain urban centers into war zones? And how can we couple needed community support for our police with transparent and uniform accountability that covers every officer of the law in our country? And what can we do to to have some progress attainable on issues such as immigration and financial inequality, health care, education equity, and other matters as well? And if we work together and actually become stronger and more united and discerning, how can this affect our tone and our actions, both just as as citizens and as a government, as we engage with those in our neighbors, neighborhoods, and our government engages with our allies within NATO and beyond NATO, and also with our chief adversaries outside of it. Top leaders in government, business, labor, and education, first of all, must actively engage all of our citizens to forge the kind of team that's fit to take the field in the 21st century. Rank-and-file men and women, rank-and-file citizens, must themselves experience evidence that our suggestions and advice are taken as seriously by leadership as our votes. Honest cooperation and compromise are as necessary within a nation and between nations as within one's own family. As an independent voter 35 years ago, and I'm still an independent today, I was blessed to witness and to share in this truth that solid leaders and common informed citizens of goodwill working together build the best path that leads to very good outcomes 
such as the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty signed by the Soviet leader and our President Reagan in 1987. So, allowing me to take you back a little bit, when John Glenn ended his candidacy for president during the 1984 primary season, I turned to President Reagan and reviewed reasons why I might trust him with my vote and perhaps with much more than my vote. A successful governor of California, elected to two four-year terms, Ronald Reagan served a population with an economy larger than all but a few sovereign nations. He was a conservative, and in a diverse state, he was able to work daily with other state officials of every political affiliation and get things done. This seemed good to me. In his first term as president, Ronald Reagan endured and survived, among other events, a slow healing economy, a nearly successful assassination attempt, a disastrous first midterm election for Republicans, and a bloody, costly terrorist suicide bombing of the U.S. Marines barracks in Lebanon. But his personal grit and humor, mixed with a relentless civility as he worked with staff in his administration and with members of Congress, including Democratic House Speaker Tip O'Neill. This was all transparent to most of Washington, D.C., and also to our citizens in most of America. In November of 1984, the voters in 49 states renewed their contract with President Reagan for another four years. Hearing my vote this time for his second term, President Reagan and his administration, late into his first term, were riveted on somehow bridging the increasingly dangerous divide between America and the Soviet Union. Back during his first term, all of the rhetoric seemed very harsh, really on both sides. We referred to them as the evil empire because they did have their foot uh, on, on the people of Eastern Europe. And uh, they looked at us with great suspicion because when they would take some adventures like going in Afghanistan and that, we would send money and resources to help those who opposed the soldiers of the Soviet Union. And other events happened. The Russians uh, shot down a passenger plane uh, near Korean airspace. It just generally was a very harsh time. People were especially worried about nuclear problems. There were many mass demonstrations in parts of Europe over this concern. The stage was set for some problems. In covering two book releases revealing a new, a new danger that added to the existing danger, these book releases were done by Mr. Lee Edwards, and he expertly shepherds the reader through the hours and days that could have changed and ended much of life on Earth. And this was covered in the Wall Street Journal in the book section, uh, July 28, 29, 2018. Late in November 1983, one year before his second presidential election victory, President Reagan and his staff 
learned that just days earlier, the Soviets feared a first-strike nuclear launch by America. They produced their own plans to strike first, beating America and NATO to the punch. Several hair-trigger days played out, with only the Soviets fully aware of the precarious hold on life itself at stake. By a very small margin, the immediate threat had passed. In a nutshell, the Soviets had a spy planted in one of the highest levels of NATO. And this person uh, made the assessment that nothing was going on uh, at the moment that really caused a threat at all to the Warsaw Pact. He said that all of those who are giving you misinformation are on the edges of uh, access to knowledge. I'm right there in the middle of it, and I'm telling you nothing is being planned, uh, nothing is being practiced uh, that constitutes any kind of a real threat to you at this current time. So, again, the, the media threat passed. But when this information, just days later, finally got back to the president and his staff, Ronald Reagan was astounded that the Soviets' fears and insecurities had compounded over time and ran so deep that they actually believed NATO war games were a cover for launching World War III. And again, this is, is made very starkly evident in the reporting of uh, Mr. Lee Edwards. President Reagan focused the best minds and experiences of his administration on engaging this threat. During President Reagan's first term, any American and Soviet outreach to one another had been hampered right from the beginning by a quick succession of deaths of aged and ill Soviet leaders. Finally, in his second term, the president sensed the new and younger Soviet General Secretary, Mr. Gorbachev, might bring more stability to the Kremlin. More importantly, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher of the United Kingdom told the president she believed after her, after her own contacts with Mr. Gorbachev that he was a man the West could do business with, far different from Mr. Andropov, near the end of his life, afflicted by memories of Russian war casualties and his own ill health. The mutual respect and trust between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan was very strong and that just increased President Reagan's resolve to engage soon with the Soviets. He knew he could trust what she said. And that's important. Ronald Reagan always put his relationship with our allies in a very high regard. He paid attention to what they said. They paid attention to what he said. And he made actions uh, come into being oftentimes based on this kind of a relationship. The Warsaw Pact, with Russia the powerhouse of the evil empire, had been America's and most of Western Europe's primary enemy for decades. This threat from the East explained, explained the need for NATO in the first place, and on too many occasions, the Cold War had nearly turned hot over flashpoints, such as the Soviets' several major attempts to limit or even end 
the freedoms of West Berlin, which was long a soft spot in the Iron Curtain. The Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, was another very close call. What was the Reagan administration now seeking? Reducing the possibility of a mutual nuclear exchange, maybe even by accident, was paramount. But this time, the White House would reach for more. They would extend their reach in a way it hadn't been done. This time we'd explore with our enemy if the will and means existed to build a new and more pragmatic working relationship between the bitter adversaries. After all, at one time both Russians and Americans had sacrificed large numbers of their generation in their common struggle against the Third Reich. What words, and perhaps even an example of respect for the Soviets' own history, could drive home to the Russians that our relations could change for the better and remain so? This could not happen at once. Verification of a shared compliance with early agreed-upon actions would have to be the major basis for building mutual trust. And, of course, this is hard work for everyone. President Reagan and General Secretary Gorbachev agreed to meet, along with their respective top staff, November 19th and 20th of 1985 were settled upon as the summit dates. Geneva, Switzerland would be the site. Since my days decades ago at Michigan State University, majoring in American Studies and American History, much of 20th century American and European history has held my attention. I recognize the two dates for Geneva. In 1942, on those two dates, massive Soviet forces unleashed a tremendous counterattack at Stalingrad by November 23rd, completely encircling remaining German divisions who had at very high cost secured much of the city. Very harsh, brutal fighting on both sides would continue through the following January. Finally, Hitler's long-held dream of defeating the Soviet Union and securing living room for the German nation's future population was finally buried alongside the snow-covered corpses of most of General Paulus's once formidable, fiercely proud German Sixth Army and their allies. In most encounters, when a Russian asks an American to state the clearest event marking Germany's downward change in military fortunes in the Second World War, the American usually answers, D-Day, Normandy, France. Very often, the Russian responds, quote, The turning point of the Great Patriotic War is Stalingrad, unquote. When I read this and, and, and thought it over, I, I said, you know, th this could be an opportunity, really. Probably we Americans realized that uh, those dates uh, were important because you've got experts there, Russian experts. But I thought, but what if they didn't? What if for some reason they missed that? And I thought, you know, I, I maybe should follow through on this. And there were, there were three people who helped me. And again, uh, one of the things I, I really hope I can share and get across here, whenever there's something that's really important and you've done a little bit of homework on it and you think, yeah, this is worth doing, 
see if you can have just a few people who know what they're talking about who can support you because that that will help you understand that yeah this this is as valid is as valid as i think it is and there were three people one was uh jack matlock later on he was our ambassador to moscow but at this time he was attached to the white house as special assistant to the president for national security affairs another was a veteran in the in the senate he had been a governor before that and that was senator mark hatfield of oregon whom i had always respected because he was the type of person who didn't pretend he had the answers to everything but rather he had good solid questions that would lead to solutions and he was this way over a period of, of 20 years that i had followed his career and then the third person very instrumental with me was my own pastor at that time he has since passed away but he also was was crucial in, in me saying okay even if i'm running against some roadblocks because so many people who i i tried to uh make contact with I, I just couldn't get it done but he said hang in there and find a way and, and god will provide the people so um first of all uh, uh mark hatfield was the one i uh encountered and what happened was i read in the paper uh here in michigan that he was going to give a, a speech to a, a congregation of, of christians in in what you would call a camping ground so uh you know it would be a drive but i could do it so i loaded my small family in the car and we went there and he gave a, a very good talk and then afterward he he met everyone individually and i had uh the book at that time that verified the dates that i've already shared with you i brought it to his attention and i, I mentioned the dates were the same and and he made the immediate observation now, are, are you worried that there's going to be something uh, bad because it coincides with these war dates i said no no just the opposite uh, senator i think that just as that was the turning point of what they call the great patriotic war we call world war ii i said this could be a turning point among past allies we were once allies a turning point to renew our working together and renew our trying to be practical and pragmatic in achieving results that would actually benefit benefit both countries and he immediately bought it and he said listen you're going to follow through on this and you're going to get the right people but all along i want you to inform my office of where it's at and then i, I will take my own initiative as well so not long after that i got an article at the school i worked at i was a high school counselor uh, in a public school uh, for just under 40 years and i i read about jack matlock and thought you know here's a guy who understands everything he's an expert in russian history now, of course i had no knowledge later he'd be our ambassador to moscow so um i talked on the phone uh to his secretary and it, she's after just a couple sentences that i said she said you hold on she went <clears throat> and she came back about three minutes later and she says listen the ambassador matlock wants you to write this up 
uh, as concisely as you can and then get it to us just as soon as you can. And she gave me the, the exact way that it would be when it arrived at the White House, it would get right to him. And then it was not too long, much longer, and I heard from the State Department, and they referred uh, to what I had sent to uh, Ambassador Matlock. And uh, they said, uh, you know, we like it. We're, we're talking to the president, and frankly, he likes it very much. And if things improve enough, as we hope they will, in all of the pre-days before this conference, we believe we're going to be able to use this. So that's, that's where it left me. I thought, okay, th this was good. It looks like they've received it in the same spirit in which it was sent, and uh, I felt better at that time. I had said to him, 1985 could be a turning point toward peace in U.S.-Soviet relations. And then I further said, and I, and I quote, By persevering in the months ahead with strong deeds and actions of goodwill, both sides have it within their power to contribute to real peace. And those words I was gifting to uh, President Reagan if he felt they would be appropriate. Now, uh, the, the conference in Geneva uh, uh, ended. And I got a call just a, a few days later from s someone in the State Department, and they said, we used it. It was well-received, but we have to tell you, there was an agreement, as oftentimes there are at summits, for a blackout. So I have no idea how long it'll be, but for that reason, we're able to share this with you, but we, we are not sharing it with the public. But we want to thank you for your contribution here uh, very much. It's very much appreciated. So I, I was pretty much noncommittal, but I thanked them very much and, and was very happy that it was of some help in some way. But when I hung up, I thought, you know, this, this isn't something that's going to, you know, violate national security or something. So I decided I was going to get a hold of a reporter for our Michigan paper, the Detroit Free Press. At that time, it was a Knight Ritter paper. Now it's, it's Gannett. They had a gentleman by the name of James McCartney who was attached to their Washington bureau. So I gave him a buzz, and I explained the situation. And, and he, he just was, took it uh, calmly and said, Okay, look, I'm the one you're dealing with. Don't be talking to other publications about it, and I'll get back to you, all right? I said, okay, yeah, fair enough. And he asked me to send him a copy uh, of, of what I had sent to Jack Madlock. Then he got back to me, January 86, and he said, okay, look, again, you haven't shared this with anyone else, right? And I said, yeah, that's correct. He says, okay, uh, this Sunday, look for it uh, on the front page of the Free Press. He said, you know, the key again, just keep your confidentiality until it's printed. And then, uh, you know, you can do what you want. So I agreed. I, I assured him, no, look, I, I haven't talked to any other publication about it. Sunday morning arrived. I ran downstairs, opened the door, looked at the top of the front page, looked at the second, third, fourth, and then I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I went back to the first page, and there in the lower left corner was the beginning of the article. And this was January 12th, 1986. You know, I started reading it and told my wife, 
here it is, told my daughter. So anyhow, um, Karma Small, who was a spokeswoman for the White House at that time, quoted right near the beginning of it, quote, the president had been told of Mr. Erickson's idea. He liked it and he used it, unquote. And then she further stated, quote, the only record of words spoken at the dinner were summary notes made by an interpreter, unquote. And Reagan, she said, did indeed uh, recall and pay tribute to the unmatched Soviet victory at Stalingrad in his toast. And then uh, Ms. Small quoted Reagan as saying, and these are the words written down by the interpreter, quote, We hope that this meeting, too, will be a turning point, unquote. Detroit Free Press, January 12, 1986. Now, looking back, I don't think I would have offered my humble suggestion to President Reagan of this after-dinner toast if I didn't have real faith that the administration would use it to play, and this is a quote from the paper, a role in setting the friendly toast for November's Geneva summit meeting between President Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. And I might add that in the days just before the summit, when I checked in with uh, the office of Jack Matlock, they had gotten a very strongly worded, encouraging letter from Senator Mark Hatfield saying that this is the time, this is the opportunity, make use of it. So that made me feel also very good on, on the help that he all along had given. And there had been several phone calls from his staff where they had been very encouraging. Also, I had mentioned before that my pastor was very helpful. And uh, I can't emphasize that enough. He, through his example and his words and his daily actions, he also, he always counseled and encouraged our congregation members that if one maturely discerns God's will on a specific issue, just do some homework, be responsible in working on the part, whether it's large or small, that God is entrusting us with. And don't be held back by any supposed concern you have about any limitations or no one will listen to you. You know, God's aware of our fears and he promises us that uh, he's mightier and, and stronger than our fears. Just just uh, prepare yourself and then go to it and get the task done that he has assigned to you. That's pretty much how I tried to approach it. Uh, again, my pastor said, Re remember, don't put obstacles in your own way. No one's asking you to be perfect. God's not asking you to be perfect. We're relying on God and the people he sends to help us. He gives us his spirit. Uh, we never depend on ourselves alone because that's always self-defeating. Be open to, in a sense, be open to allies and then be, be grateful and thankful that you have them. Now, after Geneva, there was a second summit set up for Iceland, and the Reagan administration was hoping to maintain the momentum. But the Soviets launched what I would really call it the political equivalent of a, a fighter's head feint, calculated to register and gauge the American response, to field them out, see if there were some vulnerabilities, etc. But Reagan's people were not there to play games. They'd have none of it. So the administration fairly quickly walked away from the conference table. And then George Schultz, 
announced in the media, you know, and he was a very discerning Secretary of State. He announced that, you know, maybe there won't be a serious meeting on nuclear arms after all. Shortly thereafter, the Kremlin and the White House together, simultaneously, Moscow, Washington, announced a further meeting titled Negotiations on Nuclear and Space Arms to be held beginning December 2nd, 1986 in Geneva. An administration team would meet with their Soviet counterparts to hammer out steps leading to signed agreements on issues relating to nuclear arms. President Reagan coined the phrase, trust but verify, quote unquote. General Secretary Gorbachev later jested in a meeting with the president that the latter used the phrase every time they got together. With these confirmed dates, I saw a new opportunity to make another small but helpful contribution. At least I thought it would be helpful. This time, President Reagan would not be attending what were largely work sessions. I finished a summary and a toast of somewhat lengthy remarks for this four-day gathering, and I sent them as before to Jack Matlock, who was always key to anything I hoped to contribute to our administration. He would quickly forward this two-page background summary and toast to America's head of negotiations. So really, uh, I have to say, God bless Ambassador Matt Locke for all his help. My attention was drawn to the administration's choice to lead our delegation, who must shoulder a key role in assembling, coordinating, and preparing his staff with objectives and strategies and materials over a vigorous, vigorous period right up to the actual starting date of this American-Soviet conference. President Reagan selected Max Kampelman. The press presented him as very intelligent, a Democrat, uh, very knowledgeable in his field, and Jewish, along with a short biography of his life to date. But the only direct words I saw attributed to the president himself were really as revealing about President Reagan and the men and women who served America alongside him as they were of the man he now described. Quote, Max Kampelman is an American patriot, unquote. That was it. His political party was beside the point. Quote, Max Kampelman is an American patriot, unquote. That's all that need be said. This was Ronald Reagan, the man, speaking from his soul. Get the best person who can do the highest caliber of work on an issue he or she has trained for over years or even a lifetime. Nothing else matters. Pick people who can best help America. Then, during their tenure, give them the support and respect they rightly deserve. This will help America heal, then and always. Our entire people will progress and prosper. Teamwork like this mirrors the heavens. In this longer toast at the December meeting, Max Kampelman reminded all present that in early December of 1941, Russia had, for the first time in the war, launched a march Leading, leading to a major victory, the first major victory against the Third Reich. 
driving the German forces west from the very suburbs of Moscow and not halting until a new front was established far from the capital. One day after this attack began, Imperial Japan struck and devastated much of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, causing a staggering loss of life and serious injuries among our sailors and other U.S. military personnel. Germany's declaration of war against the United States four days later instantly made the Soviets and Americans allies, along with the British, during some of the darkest days of the 20th century. The challenge now before both teams was to summon the strength, the spirit, and the wisdom to honor and validate the huge sacrifice made while allies during the early weeks and months when the war's outcome could not be known. The ambassador continued, These days, which we are now sharing together here, 45 years after the beginnings of the Grand Alliance, are every bit as important as that glorious earlier time. That earlier partnership was formed to win a war, a war for survival. Today, history again calls us to pool our talents and resources, this time not to win a war of survival, but rather to work together to establish a peace with justice. Despite differences and disagreements, some serious, we together succeeded in winning the war. Today, again together, and again despite differences, some serious, we must succeed in making real progress toward peace with justice for all our planet. To fail in this is not only to fail the peoples of our world to today who watch us with both hope and fear. To fail here and in the months and years to come is also to fail all of our brothers and sisters who fought and died in that war. To establish true peace is the only goal worthy of their sacrifice. Along with the living, they wait in attentive silence for the answer we shall give to all. That was quoted on January 8th, uh, 1987, in a local paper, a weekly paper, reported by Ms. Lori White. I'm very, very appreciative. She, she did her homework. Anyhow, let me, let me go on. Max Kampelman shepherded his teammates through this very hard mission of working with the Soviets. And the resulting Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, signed by General Secretary Gorbachev and President Reagan in the year following the December 1986 negotiations, in other words, 1987, was a tremendous accomplishment for both the Soviets and the Americans. Now, several weeks after the negotiations, Valerie Daniel, representing Ambassador Campbellman, confirmed from her Washington office when she was contacted uh, by Ms. Lori White that the ambassador had used the lengthy toast. She stated, to the best of her knowledge, that, and this is a quote from her, Ambassador Campbellman had used the toast 
just as Ken had written it, unquote. I was relieved and grateful, both. My faith informed me that even entrenched enemies, with the right vision and courage, can muster through disagreements and differences to a more productive and just future. Now, it's also important to point out that America's changing and improving relationship with the Soviet Union was not crafted to hinder honest dialogue, often painful dialogue, between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. Russia, forever it almost feels like, but Russia feared enemy armaments on its doorstep, and Ronald Reagan understood this. You know, Ronald Reagan uh, was old enough, he remembers World War II, uh, who was his favorite president of all time for Ronald Reagan. It was FDR, okay, FDR. And FDR, we might point out, was the only major Democratic leader, the only one who predicted that Moscow would be held by the Russians against Hitler. So that's, that's worth recognizing also. But Ronald Reagan also had long determined that deep and lasting wounds from prior wars could not forever justify the long and very harsh occupation of the, quote, captive nations, unquote, of Eastern Europe. We might add that the Polish Pope John Paul II shared this conviction. After all, uh, he had lived and struggled and suffered with millions of others under both the, the Nazi boots of Germany and the boots of, Soviet, of the Soviet Union. So he knew exactly what they had gone through because he had gone through it as well. So the year of the signing of the INF Treaty, that same year, in other words, where Mr. Gorbachev and Mr. Reagan sat down and signed it, was the same year that President Reagan took a trip to Berlin. And he had a new message for the General Secretary. Quote, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Unquote. In the fall of 1989, only months following President Reagan leaving office, the Berlin Wall fell. In singling out President Reagan and his staff for deserved praise and gratitude for pursuing justice and security for America and the world with a wise, rugged per perseverance, we don't ignore nor do we excuse the administration's shortcomings. No president and staff and no individual citizen or group of citizens are without sin. The president's second term brought us, among several failures and disappointments, a flawed immigration fix that on the one hand mercifully and correctly provided citizenship for many, but lacking congressional follow-through would not secure our borders and other areas from the entry of undocumented individuals, families, and larger groups. We also endured the disastrous and illegal Iran-Contra debacle, causing troubling and embarrassing Washington hearings. Yet to many Americans, the Reagan administration received high marks overall for thoughtful-based decisions and common-sense boldness a standard of humility and mutual respect between a president and his chosen staff 
that firmly sets them in communion, in my view, with certain other great administrations in America's tumultuous history. A few years later, General Secretary Gorbachev lost power as part of the ongoing drama of the Soviet Union breaking apart. Our relations with the new Russia began deteriorating after this loss of Gorbachev and the absence of others with the skills, goodwill, and vision to serve the Russian people and help guide them down a different path from their current course to solid prosperity and good relations with all their neighbors. In America, successive administrations, Republican and Democrat, shifted their attention and resources to two to new major challenges. Secure and improved relations with Russia ceased being the top priority it had been. Culturally, the Roman Catholic Church and other Christians, along with many persons of other faiths, prayed and had long persevered and suffered in their role to free Poland and others in Eastern Europe from brutal Soviet domination and oppression that I've already referred to. Freedom, therefore, found many of those newly liberated, both exhausted and dazed. They lacked the refreshed vision, they lacked the energy and agility to pivot and actively create new bonds of oneness with the Russian Orthodox brothers and sisters. Very little exists now that unites East and West. I should point out also, and, and I am uh, a Roman Catholic, that Pope John Paul, in later years in his ministry, uh, pointed out that he very, very much wanted the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the most holy Eastern Orthodox Church uh, uh, to reunite, to somehow come together. He said, it's like a body with, with two lungs, but they're not functioning together. You know, you've got the Roman Catholic lung and you've got the Eastern Orthodox uh, lung. And the Russian Orthodox uh, Church, the Holy Russian Orthodox Church, is a part, of course, of that Eastern Orthodox Church. So I think it's noteworthy that he made that point. And as a Catholic, I feel that that's one of the obligations that I have to be aware of and, and do my small part on. Now, more recently, Russia's verifiable cheating on the INF Treaty, along with their unlawful military conquest of Crimea, along with new threats to the Baltic region, really reveals a leadership not measuring up to their citizens' sacrifices, both past and present. And this is not good. Three veterans of past administrations and from the United States Senate argue that the current divide between Russia and America is severe and very dangerous. They reported this in the Wall Street Journal, April 11, 2019, uh, page 17. In their opinion piece, George Schultz, William Perry, and Sam Nunn claim that the current impasse, quote, could lead most likely by mistake or miscalculation to the use of nuclear weapons, unquote. Ambassador Max Kampelman's mission is one of the few highlights to date 
on the path forward for the two wartime allies. He was strong and wise and diligent to detail. No one should be surprised at his team's success. Quote, Max Kampelman is an American patriot, unquote. President Reagan had promised nothing but the best from Ambassador Kampelman's leadership and service to our people and other nations. We must remember the INF Treaty was purposely sought by President Reagan with the security needs of our NATO allies, including Great Britain, a major priority. Now, China was not included in the original Soviet-American negotiations in late 1986 and therefore was not bound by this treaty. I can also point out uh, in talking about George Shultz, uh, William Perry, and, and Sam Nunn, they also uh, they further declared in the Wall Street Journal last fall their support, their really strong support for what was called the Open Skies Treaty of 1992. The original idea behind this treaty originated with President Dwight Eisenhower during his presidency. But I, we, we need to point out on May 21st of this year, 2020, President Trump announced our country's withdrawal from the Open Skies uh, Treaty. Just a couple days before he left office, on January 18, 1989, President Reagan awarded Ambassador Kampelman the Presidential Citizens Medal. A full decade later, on August 11, 1999, President Bill Clinton presented this American servant with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Max Kampelman persevered fighting for a world free of nuclear threats into his later years. On May 22, 2008, the National Endowment for Democracy presented him with its Democracy Service Medal for his lifetime work advancing freedom, democracy, and human rights. Max Kampelman died in 2013 at the age of 92. Focusing more on, on what's going on today, we can ask, which of our two major candidates today, running for the presidency this November, reveals the agility, the grit, and the imagination to both shepherd and sustain an ongoing diplomacy that is both disturbingly honest, yet appropriately respectful of our allies and our adversaries? Will freedom and a healthy chosen unity at home and abroad, will it expand or contract under his watch? Will he have the wisdom and discernment President Reagan revealed when he chose Max Kampelman to lead the crucial stages of the march to the final INF Treaty? Max Kampelman fought with his whole being to help avoid the most radical, man-made, contribution to climate change, a nuclear winter. Will our current candidates share their plans adding nuclear winter to the worldwide discussion concerning climate change? Through several formal debates and seven hours or more on CNN's town hall on the climate, not one Democratic candidate then running for the presidency really adequately addressed this threat. Does President Trump 
have the insight and does he have the desire to speak clearly and honestly with the American people on this issue? He hasn't yet. President Reagan's team engaging with the Soviets were not only strong, resourceful, and nimble, they were resilient. Setbacks in Iceland and elsewhere couldn't stop them. They brought the Soviet team on board. They brought them, made them like a team, brought them on board to show the Russians how a shared positive outcome on the INF Treaty would actually be a win and a blessing for both nations. Future agreements over time could avoid massive spending on armaments. The great Russian people can experience prosperity only if their leadership will act with courage and make decisions to allow it. Can our current administration be counted on to lead a divided nation served by a fractured federal government to improve and replace that from which America withdrew, that treaty from which America withdrew last August 2019 on August 2nd? This was at the end of the six-month notification period. Or does Vladimir Putin's formal order of March 4, 2019, to void Russia's adherence to that treaty, end our engagement on this life and death question with our bitterly resentful adversary. Will a different administration taking office in January of 2021 do any better in a long sustained face-off with Russia? China, and others. John Huntsman understands better than most the dangerous crossroads where Russia, America, and yes, China now meet. Our former ambassador to China under President Obama and our ambassador to Russia under President Trump spells out in stark detail the urgent need for engagement and dialogue with Russia. He stated this in the Wall Street Journal, October 8th of 2019. If President Trump is reelected, I assume uh, he will keep his, his Secretary of State, Mr. Pompeo, with whom he has uh, very good relations. They have great tr trust uh, and chemistry between them. If, by chance, uh, Mr. Biden, former vice president, wins the election, I would very much urge him to consider John Huntsman as, as one of his top candidates for becoming Biden's first secretary of state. I think he has the background. I think he has the will and interest. I, I, I think that well, he, he, would, he is just outstanding in my opinion. Now, seeing and hearing all these different public servants we've covered share their warnings is important. It's very important for us to hear it. More important, more crucial 
is who among us, whether we're talking about mature government leaders or informed citizens, will embrace the hard work necessary to build the mutually pragmatic and productive relationship with our allies and our adversaries, which the Reagan administration dared to reach for during its watch in an earlier era. Our nation, like many countries, was stunningly unprepared for the coronavirus challenge, but together with God's help will prevail at yet undetermined human and material cost. But we also need to be working with the laser focus in conjunction with our allies and adversaries, including China, to prevent the tragedy of a nuclear exchange, accidental or not. The past two decades have been dangerous disappointments on this question. The Trump administration has begun working with the Russians to replace the New START Treaty, which expires next February. This was pointed out in Wall Street Journal June 23rd of this year, 2020. Now, a Twitter tirade has already begun, and they were traded between the Americans and the Chinese because the Chinese so far say they have no interest in negotiating on nuclear arms with either the Americans or the Russians. But if these three powers, Russia, China, America, fail to work in good faith on nuclear arms issues, all three face a much severe and far deeper wound to humanity than from our continuing struggle with the coronavirus pandemic now sweeping our world and from the drastic dividends of climate change that await all of us on our planet. People like President Reagan and Ambassador Campbellman hold on and serve until they can no longer serve. Both men gave, gave their all. That's the only way to put it. Both of them gave their all. Now both are at peace. I believe firmly that both still care about democracy and freedom and human rights. Both men also, I firmly believe, along with the living and the dead, wait in attentive silence for the answer we shall give to all. Knowledge and brave words are important, but without unity, persistence, and resilience are like slow, shallow streams that never surmount large rocks, tree limbs, and other obstacles as they strain and fail to reach the sea. But if we are united in our faith and in our determined support and endurance for one another, then like millions of small streams and running springs gathering strength and speed as they join in, inland together, then America becomes a strong, purposeful, mighty river which overcomes large obstacles and abandons unhelpful diversions as it powers to the oceans. These are sound questions for our current candidates for the presidency, their staffs, and for all our citizens to ask and to keep asking, really. Not just as we march toward November, but just as much 
maybe more so, in the months and years which follow this coming election. President Reagan and his staff still support and encourage us from where they are. And it's important, very important, to remember that. Also, uh, we have talked about some of the things they did to try to establish a new relationship with Russia and with other countries as well. Uh, and, and that's such a lesson for all of us going forward, all of us. And they, they left us something. There, were other, there was another issue that they also were making quite good progress. Uh, over a six-year period, they discussed it among themselves. And if things hadn't gone south after we lost Gorbachev, I believe it would have taken place. So that also should give us encouragement that they not only served at the time, but people like President Reagan and like Ambassador Kappelman left us something. They left us something that we could use now or future administrations could in some way fashion it together and use it when they face their own life and death questions, which are sure to come to later administrations. So that also should give us encouragement. The people before us who make contributions don't just make contributions that that are important for their term or a, a while. They can make contributions that last throughout eternity. And we should always be grateful for that. And we should also be alert to learn all we can from those who've been successful in reaching out to allies and to enemies, in being truthful, being gritty, not sugarcoating anything, but finding any opportunity we can to build a new bond, which is really what we're expected to do. Thank you all very much. Uh, God bless you. I appreciate this opportunity uh, that you've given me.